Perhaps it's true that words would fail to express the thoughts that each of us have in gratitude for the capability we have of coming together today. As you know, this is the first Sunday in the year 2007. As we look forward with the blessing of God for 51 to follow, we can appreciate the grandness and the glory of the first day of the week on which we, by the command and power of the Master, are able to come together to offer unto Him that which He so justly deserves. And indeed, as we edify ourselves in those assemblies, what a blessing indeed it really is. It's good, as has already been mentioned, to see the visitors who've come our way today. As well, we're so thankful for our regular membership and that things are as well with us that we can come together. And we always look forward to those times in which we could come together and lift up our voices, encourage each other, and in fact, produce that source of strength from the Word of God to walk each day near to Him. As we begin to consider some of the lessons for the month of January, might I submit to you that sometimes you and I are faced with questions, questions that in fact are worthy of an answer, questions that in fact are challenging and powerful, and in fact not only that, but are eternally significant. One of those questions is the one I've selected for the title to the lesson today. What is the church? As you think about that answer, maybe as someone asks, opportunity does not immediately grant you the capability of answering in as full a way as you'd like. But oh, how each of us need to have firmly embedded within our mind what the church is and what it is not. Today, let us begin a series of studies in which we will look intently at the character of the church. And it's certainly the prayer as we consider this that we each will be deeply strengthened as we think about the character of this wonderful and blessed body known as the church. Some introductory thoughts might be worthy of our consideration. These introductory thoughts, in fact, would challenge us to realize the following. Even at the outset of the lesson, the church is a vitally significant and eternally important matter. It is not something that can be approached too lightly. It's not something that can be approached in a way that makes it less than significant. It deserves the utmost of attention, and it deserves the utmost of one's fair appreciation. Let me hasten to say that one of the reasons why a study like this is so critical is because in the mind of so many in the world, the church is a tarnished thing. Yes, indeed. In the mind of so many in the world, the church does not possess the glory that it should. They look upon the church for one reason or another in a light that is more dark than it is light. How many individuals do you or I know who are excited at least in word about Jesus, but they have no interest in the church? Perhaps they'd say, give me Jesus, but I want nothing to do with the church. In their mind, Jesus is pristine, powerful, and beautiful, and they love his teaching, but they seem to not appreciate the church. There's actually a movement in our world that's called the No Church Movement. People who, in fact, call themselves a follower of Christ, but they're a part of no church whatsoever. Well, you and I should ponder deeply, is that right? Can that be? Well, before the series is over, we will have answered that completely, and in fact, we'll even touch its answer before we're finished today. But to say all of that, notice that three reasons seem easy enough to state for the cause of the tarnishment of the church in the mind of many. One, no doubt, is religious division. 
when a person who is an honest and sincere seeker of truth looks about and sees hundreds of different bodies who all claim to follow the same book and yet they teach different things, they worship different ways, they practice different things, they believe different things, one couldn't help but be confused. So religious division is one cause of why some people in our world just don't really have any interest in the church. If they can't make their mind up about what's true, then why should I follow them? Why would I want to be a part of them? A second reason, though, is simply the characteristic, not only of religious division, but simply that of ignorance. There are so many in our world who have never taken the time to think about never devoted the energy to ponder the significance of the church, and hence they simply live their life basically immaterial to it and interested in it. Yet a third reason why some are not interested in the church is because of the hypocrisy of those who are in it. Maybe as a person with whom I work looks at my life and they see a person whose life does not match what they know is in that book. Or they see a person who speaks in a way differently than what the Bible speaks. Then they have less than a great interest in what I have to say. Or that body to which I belong. All of those no doubt are contributing factors to why in the mind of so many the church is a tarnished thing. But let us be quick to say the Lord never intended it to be tarnished. He never intended the thoughts and the ideas of men and the characteristic of division and ignorance and hypocrisy to tarnish and mar and cloud his body. And so beginning in our lesson today, let us devote some attention to this book. What does it say about the church? As we start that, let me pose to you that many ways and in many characteristics, what if you and I were simply interested in finding out what is the church? One of the sources of information that you could turn to would be a dictionary. What if you opened Webster's Dictionary? What if you sought any of the words that would define for you the church? Let me submit to you that if you open Webster's Dictionary and look under the word church, you will see at least half a dozen definitions. One of them identifies a building where people come together and meet for the purpose of religious services. Another definition will be the act of worship that takes place when a group of people come together. Yet a third definition involves the subject of a denomination. A fourth definition relates to the characteristic associated with a cult or a group or sect of a denomination. Well, you begin to see the point. A person who is sincerely interested in learning what the church is, what would they have gained by reading those definitions? Are any of them right? Is one of them close to being right? Could a person, in fact, define and come to a deep understanding of the word church based on any of them? I'd submit to you that any number of other sources could be approached. What about an encyclopedia? a pamphlet that one might have access to, a journal that one may read? What if one turned on the TV and listened to a preacher discuss the church? What if one sought advice or counsel from a friend? We get the idea. I suspect that if you polled a thousand people on what the church is, you likely would get a large number of answers. May I submit to you, dear friend, that none of those are reliable sources. Pamphlets, 
Webster's Dictionary, a friend, the counsel and advice in a journal. There's really only one source to which we can go, and that's the book that you hold in your hand and the one I hold in mine. The Word of God must be the source book for the character of the church, and any other thing that we might turn to in hopes of ascertaining its meaning must be taken with, at the very least, a grain of salt, if not completely recognize that it is futile as we compare it to what the Lord has said. And so over the next few lessons, let's deeply turn to the Word of God and let it define for us the church. And as we settle that thought in our mind, we will be greatly enriched by letting God speak to us about it. It's certainly true that there are many things that the Bible says about the church. And as we begin this series of studies, let me pose to you that there are at least 50 descriptive phrases used in the Bible about the church. Now today, we certainly will not have the time to go through all 50 of them, but let's choose four of them. And as we look at those four descriptions of the church, I believe we will come to a recognition of truly what a marvelous body this, this church is. Let me begin by using the very word that appears in the Greek New Testament. As one studies and reads the 27 books of the Lord's New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, there will be many numbers of occasions in which you will encounter in the Greek a word called ekklesia. I understand that you and I don't speak Greek, but that's fine. For we understand what the English translation of that word is. It's the word church. We can gain some knowledge or meaning about the character of the church by fully appreciating what that word originally signified when the Lord used it, when Peter and Paul and the other apostles used it. What does that word signify? First, let's ascertain its meaning. Ecclesia, I have written in Greek first, and then out beside it, the corresponding English transliteration. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, Ecclesia. And hence, when you and I read texts like Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. What did the Lord mean? Or in Acts 20, verse 28, when there Paul wrote to those elders or addressed the elders of the church in Ephesus, he said, Take heed unto yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the ecclesia of God. What is ecclesia? In the Greek, it is a word composed of two parts. First, there is a prefix, ek, and then there is a suffix or main body of the word, klesis, k-l-e-s-i-s. That word klesis means a calling. The prefix ek means out of. To put them together, the church then is those called out of. Now, we should be fair and say that in the original days of 2,000 years ago, that word could be used in a broader way than that. And in fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 39, it's used in that way. Originally, the idea was this. Any group of people that were called for a specific mission and purpose into a specified arrangement could be recognized as an ecclesia. For example, a jury... A group of people selected and called out of the normal body of all people into a special unit of jury, they can be called an ecclesia. 
But we should be very careful to observe that our Lord used that word especially with respect not to a law court, not to any other kind of calling, but to his followers. Notice again Matthew 16, 18. Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church, he said. Jesus wasn't talking about courts of law. He wasn't talking about a political process. He was not referring to any matter other than the fact that there would be those called out of the lost state in the world into a saved state covenant relationship with himself. That's what the church at the most basic fundamental level implies. It identifies those called out of the lost state into the saved state. In fact, consider again that text that Greg read for us a moment ago. In Ephesians 5.23, it's true that at the outset of that text, Paul wrote to that congregation in Ephesus and he observed that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and gave himself for it. But the latter part of that verse is our interest today. For notice he says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the Savior of the body. Thus, in that very verse, the church is identified as those that are saved. It clearly suggests, and it absolutely means, then that those outside that church are lost. Thus, Webster's Dictionary failed us on this point. It didn't say anything about that. But yet the Bible does. The church is then an eternally significant and important body in which those in it are saved and those not in it are not. We need to appreciate that aspect of the church, don't we? Notice also in the same situation, the screen that I placed, those comments there on the wall. Notice also that one encounters about 30 times in the New Testament the usage of this ecclesia, the usage of this idea of the church. Those early believers came to appreciate and love that body so dearly. In fact, they were such that they would sacrifice and give their lives in deference to it. One might well ask, what about entrance into that body? Was it a trivial matter? Was it something that was accidental? You notice that I used the word into a moment ago, that preposition. Out of one state into another. That preposition identifies a change of state, and it occurs only by a definite process. If, for example, one were to make the comment that we came into this building today, well, we each would understand the fact there, were, there was a definite process by which that happened. There's, what, three doors to this building that are commonly utilized, perhaps. We can rest assured that the person entered through one of them. As we consider the character of the church, this ecclesia, that relationship that then is a saved one, how does one come into it? As you can see on the wall there, Paul identified that very clearly when he said in Romans 10, 13, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It involves a calling. That calling is administered by God, but it's responded to by you and me. And Paul, in fact, did that very response. The same way you and I would. When Ananias, that devoted disciple, came to him in Acts 9, 
we have the following statement that he made. And now why tarest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Paul had stated that it's necessary to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. He completed that when he was baptized. We do not do it any differently today. Thus, as we've studied Ecclesia, we have certainly learned the importance of the term. We've learned it identifies those that are saved. But what else might we glean? Well, consider some other ways the church is described. Notice that we have another description, and maybe this one came to your mind first, the body of Christ. As you and I con contemplate the notion of the word body, think about this with me. That is a concept that is not at all unusual to us. It is a concept that is not far-fetched in any sense. We usually are able to think easily about a body, for we each have one. We know about the physical body. And in the physical world, we know that body is connected or attached to one head. And together they form a unit. It is a unit with great potential, a unit with great possibility, a unit that can accomplish so very much. Furthermore, we appreciate then that the head controls and directs the affairs of the body. And in the same token, the body responds identically and completely to the directions of the head. When all of that is remembered, that seems to be true not only in the human family, but in the animal kingdom. An animal has a head and a body as well. What then does it mean when that description occurs in the New Testament? Listen to some of these verses. Let us begin in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. As those brethren in Ephesus first heard this read, what would they have thought when they heard the following? And he hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Obviously, they knew he wasn't talking about some physical body in the sense of the same way that the head of the physical body is attached to that physical body. Notice he said, the body of Christ. And in Colossians 1.18, we encounter a similar description. Speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Six verses later in Colossians 1.24, notice yet again that Christ's body is the church. We simply can't misunderstand that. It's stated too plainly and too often. The body of Christ is the church. We will understand that our Savior's physical body was nailed to a cross. And furthermore, following that it was buried, and furthermore it was raised on that Lord's Day morning. And ultimately, in Acts 1, verses 9 to 11, he ascended back to the Father. His physical body doesn't reside on this planet anymore. However, Paul said his spiritual body does. The church is his spiritual body. What do we conclude? In the same way that the physical body responds directly and totally to the affairs and commands of the head, so too the spiritual body, which is the church, responds to Christ by following his lead, his doctrine, his teachings, and his commands. It's that simple, isn't it? We can easily appreciate then, based on that statement, that the church consists then of individuals. Did you notice that first definition that I briefly made note of a moment ago? Webster's Dictionary said the church is a building. 
that apparently is not true. We just stated then that the body of Christ is the church. In fact, notice some texts that help us understand that that's the case. In Acts chapter 5, notice the statement that's there made in verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church. Can fear come upon a building? Can a building sense being afraid? Can a building appreciate fear? Of course not. A building is a lifeless entity. It has no soul, if you will. It has no feeling. But yet the text says that fear came upon the church. Or in Acts 8, verse 3, Notice there with me that when Saul brought great havoc against the church, and it does say church, it specifically notes he held men and women and committed them to prison. The church apparently consists of men and women. It consists of people such as you and me. Isn't that an interesting thing? The church is no lifeless entity like a building. It is no simple matter by which something is merely a thing that is. A church is people. Saints is a word often used in the New Testament to identify them. These are people consecrated to God. They are literally God's people. These saints referred to somewhat over 50 times in the New Testament text are those holy set apart to God, sanctified, if you will. And that's the word Paul used for them in 1 Corinthians 1. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, Saints that are sanctified to God. You and I, thus, are not a building. Individually, we're God's building. Spiritually, we are the body of Christ. That body, that recognition, helps us appreciate the thoroughness and the importance eternally of this characteristic of the church. To this point, we've learned then today about ecclesia. We've learned then the church is the body of Christ. But let's go a little further. How else is the church identified? If we turn and recognize the notion of the kingdom, that's another common description of the church in the New Testament. In fact, as we begin to consider that, let's begin in the very way that maybe Jesus did in Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they, in hasty response, said, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But Jesus, in a very abrupt fashion, said, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter, in his bold and aggressive fashion, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus pronounced a blessing upon Peter. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." At this point, a brief reflection upon that text leads us to conclude this. In verse 18, the Lord said he'd build the church, the ecclesia. In verse 19, he said to Peter he'd give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It makes no sense whatsoever to say the Lord would build one thing and give Peter the keys to something else. What the Lord built is what he gave Peter the keys to. The kingdom and the church are one and the same. 
and thus as we appreciate that thought, notice with me about the character of the kingdom. A kingdom by the very mention of the word means four things are absolutely required. One, there's a rule. You can have no kingdom if there isn't at least a set of rules that identify it. Furthermore, there must be a reign. For if you have a kingdom, there must be a king. There must be someone who's reigning. But not only that, a king makes no sense if there aren't subjects. There must be someone who's underneath that reign, someone who's ruled over by that king. Notice I've listed all those four items there for our consideration. And isn't it true in the New Testament that all four aspects of that statement are discussed in detail? Speaking of that law, that rule to which you and I are submissive in the church, Paul said, not that we're not under law, I am under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 And in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it's the law of Christ. Notice we've already learned then about the rule and we've already learned about the reign. Christ is the one reigning. Consider that statement made by Paul in 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy 6.15. Quite often as we've reflected upon that, thought about it, understood it, Paul stated to Timothy, speaking of that greatness of Jesus, he said, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Isn't it amazing that in present tense language, Paul said He is King of kings. It's not that He someday will be King. He now is King of kings and Lord of lords. That inspired apostle of love known as John stated that two more times in the Revelation. In Revelation 17, 14 and Revelation 19, 17. Both again identify that one riding on the white horse as the Christ. And he's called King of Kings. Can we not appreciate then that that body, that ecclesia, that kingdom over which Christ reigns today is you and me and how blessed we are to be members of that kingdom citizens and enjoying all the benefits of citizenship in it. The thoughts that I've listed furthermore challenge us to understand then that the church is no arbitrary organization. It is not equal to a Rotary Club, a Lions Club, or any civic organization. It is not on equal footing with any construct or body of people that men may devise. It is God's people. His saints structured in His kingdom. The very thought then of that kingdom will motivate us in some of our succeeding lessons as we think about the exact meaning for you and me today of that thought. But maybe as we've reflected upon them, we can also consider one final issue. That kingdom. We understand today that entrance into a kingdom again occurs by a specified process. For instance, you and I are citizens of the United States, even though this is not a kingdom per se. We become citizens of this country by natural birth or by naturalization as we move here and forfeit our citizenship elsewhere. How does one become a member of God's kingdom? How does one decide or choose or in fact enter into that kingdom? Nicodemus came to Jesus on one occasion. He came by nine in John chapter three, and in verses three through five, what an interesting conversation they had. In verse number five, Jesus said, Except ye be born of water and the Spirit, ye cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's a very exclusive statement, isn't it? 
Jesus exactly testified that the only entrance then into this kingdom was by physical, or by, I'm sorry, by birth, spiritual rebirth. As often as the New Testament discusses that, we remember that birth happens again by water and by spirit. It happens when baptism occurs, scriptural baptism, when sins are washed away and one's born into God's family. John 1 verse 12. That thought again will challenge us to recognize that this is no organization that we just decide to join like we do, for instance, some civic club. You and I might go into Cookville and sign up and be a part of any number of groups. The church cannot be entered that way. It is a kingdom. It's the body of Christ. It's entered only by birth. The interesting thought is then, as we come to the final recognition of our discussion today, how else is the church discussed? Tonight, let me go ahead and ask you to please come back and be with us. Because as we look at one other facet and aspect of the church, we'll each be challenged at the 5.30 hour as we consider one of the ways the church is discussed in this text. But let's look at the latter part of it. The pillar and ground of truth. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, the second to the last verse in that chapter, as Paul wrote then to his young son in the faith, he challenged him to always be faithful and ready, but he couched his words with these thoughts. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Much could be said about that text, but notice that there is an identification then that the church, by direct equality, is the pillar and the ground of the truth. What does that mean? The word pillar and the word ground I have defined for us, using those who are skilled and so very knowledgeable about the Greek meanings of those words. Note with me that the word pillar identifies the following. The responsibility to maintain the doctrines of the faith, both by teaching and by practice. But what's more, the word ground simply means bulwark or support or stay. And thus Paul specifically stated, and we can't misunderstand, the church is the defender of the faith. It is the very element by which the maintenance and the sustenance of the truth is withheld. If the truth is to be defended, the church must do it. If the truth is to be propagated and sent forth, the church must do it. It goes without saying that the devil's not going to do it. And yet anything that's not in the kingdom, anything that's not in that body is thus in the Lord in Satan's following. For Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, verse 30, You're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. So outside that kingdom of God, outside that body of Christ, outside the ecclesia are those that are lost, those are in Satan's kingdom, those are in outside the body of Christ. Either description is tragic. It's terrible to think about being a part of that number. We then appreciate the church, the pillar, the ground of the truth. Jesus stated himself in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And thus the church is the defender of the truth. It propagates the truth. It's based on the truth. It acts with a thus saith the Lord and not otherwise. 
It bases the things it teaches, the way it worships, the things that it espouses upon a thus saith the Lord. And as such, it remains true as the bulwark of truth. In the Old Testament, we remember the powerful meaning of bulwark. In Psalm 48, 13, Remove not the ancient landmarks, for they're a bulwark to that which I've established. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Today, then, we should readily appreciate, and it's not a pleasant thought, but nonetheless it's true. A group, then, that merely calls itself the church may not necessarily be, for is it defending the truth? Is it based on the truth? Does it follow of us, saith the Lord, and what it teaches, does, and practices? If it does, then it is the church. But if it doesn't, then it just calls itself that when it really isn't. As Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was to be a preacher. He was to be an evangelist. He was to be one who would proclaim the truth of God. And notice to him, he said, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That hasn't changed today. Thankful we can be that 2,000 years later, that as the pillar and ground of the truth exists, we have access to the truth of God as the church aids us in propagating it, understanding it, rightly dividing it, 2 Timothy 2.15. It is no wonder then that the Bereans were so highly commended in Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with their readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. How did they discern what was truthful and what wasn't? They didn't, dis- they didn't rely upon human concoctions, thoughts and disciplines and writings of men. They searched the scriptures daily. You and I today can be a church so highly spoken of just like these in the New Testament, like that church in Antioch, that church perhaps in Philippi, Those congregations were so highly commended because they followed the truth. They were the pillar and ground of it. As we've reached near the close of our lesson this morning, may we revisit and recall again the text that we used near the outset of the lesson, Ephesians 5, verse 23. It may be that no other text so quickly and so succinctly emphasizes the church's significance. He is the Savior of the body. Jesus will not save anyone not in that body. He won't save. He hasn't promised anywhere to save any person not in that body. If you've reached in that age of where you know right from wrong, you know that there's sin in your life and you know the Lord died for you, then you have reached the age of being old enough to know that you need to be in the body. And entrance into that body is gained as you believe, repent, confess, and are baptized. We could aid you in doing that today. We could, in fact, happily assist you in accomplishing it. If you have done that in life, but haven't been true and faithful to that body, you've lost sight of the ecclesia. It has simply become just like some other organization on earth, resolved in your mind to again understand. And Peter emphasizes this in 2 Peter 2, 18-22. Emphasizes again how unique important and powerful the church is. Let it again be a vital part of your life, and if we could aid you to come back to your first love, we would be happy to do that. Brother Eddie has chosen a hymn of invitation, a hymn of encouragement. If we could assist you in any way today to make you a complete and rightful and fervent member in the ecclesia and the church, let us do that even now. While together we stand and while we sing.